The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Matthew 5, verse 38. Let us hear the word of God. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but... If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, we readily confess that without you we can do nothing, no preaching, no hearing, which would give any blessedness or instruction how we are utterly dependent upon you, Lord God, now to speak to us through your word. Be pleased, almighty God, our Father in heaven, through the ministrations of the Holy Spirit, to bless your people richly. Give us wisdom, understanding. Delight in your word, a love for justice, a love for mercy, that we might give our mind to the weightiest things of your law. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I wonder if you've met the kind of person who is consistently desiring mercy and grace for themselves but is unable to show that mercy and grace to others. I think it was an old Puritan that wrote, as soon as we have been released from the prison of sin, we become jailers to others. Interesting thought. Well, we know as we're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and particularly the Sermon on the Mount, that's precisely the way the Jews had been thinking and the Jews had been functioning. They had stretched the law of God beyond all recognition, diluted it, emptied it of its power and of its message. And here we find them now uh, dismissing the rights of others and yet standing rigidly on their own rights in the interests of so-called justice. And that's why our Lord returns us to the law of Moses uh, in this passage, Exodus 21, to be precise. He returns us to the law of Moses to show that the true fulfillment of the law cited here in verse 38 is not in standing on one's own rights, but actually in mercy and kindness and humility. Humility, not necessarily legal recourse, and certainly not retaliation. The passage before us is laid out much like the other sections prior to it and after it. We have a problem, we have a principle, and then we have an application. In other words, Christ is finding the problem in the Jews' thinking. Uh, The Jews' understanding of justice was the real problem at hand. We'll see that in verse 38. The principle is this. Our Lord teaches us true justice how true justice and mercy work together. And the application is just that, that justice 
and mercy can belong together in the Christian's mind. So let's look at the problem, the Jews' understanding of the law, and in particular their understanding of justice. We have there in verse 38 these words, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's a partial quotation that our Lord is citing from Exodus 21 and verse 24. It's accurate, but it is partial. And that law was given in the context of personal Injury, And by personal injury, I mean physical injury, what we might term one kind of assault or another. The law in Exodus 21 gave punishments for such varied assault situations. So, for example, go back to Exodus 21 and read verse 15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Pretty hard-hitting stuff. To strike one's father or mother carried with it the death penalty. Or verse 18, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time. So the the law is going through different scenarios with respect to assault. Our text that our Lord cites is found really in verse 22. And listen to the context of this eye-for-eye principle. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That's the narrow context there. An assault in which a pregnant woman is injured, leading to the birth of her children. What what are we seeing here? There's a principle, equitable punishment to fit a specific crime. Equitable punishment to fit a specific crime. And it's a punishment that shall be examined by the judges, as it says there in verse 22. What we're seeing is this, the law of Moses, the law of God, perfectly protects both the offended, the injured, and the offender, the injurer. It protects both parties. What do I mean by that? The law ensured that the offended party would have righteous restitution for the offense against them. And as we saw, sometimes that might include a fine But it also ensured that the offender is not sinned against by excessive and unjust punishment. And that point is very important for us as we come to consider what our Lord says in Matthew chapter 5. God's law is perfectly righteous. It is righteous in process. It is righteous in application and outcome. And yet we see in our own age, do we not, a willingness to bypass the principles of righteousness to gain a certain 
outcome, a desired outcome. Friends, that's what the Jews were doing with this law. We see in this passage their legalism and their antinomianism, their hatred of God's law, because they used this law for personal gain. They used the law of God for personal gain. We've said, have we not, that the law of God is righteous and it provides parameters in which justice may be enacted. And it's vital to the process of justice, is it not, that judges, offended parties, offending parties submit to a righteous legal process. Because if any of those parties do not submit to the process of righteousness, what do we have? We have injustice. We have unrighteousness. Now, we've seen how the Jews treated the law elsewhere. This law is no exception. They were really not interested in the standard of God's righteousness, but in their own standard of self-righteousness. In other words, they wanted an outcome which suited themselves, not the interests of righteousness. And this is what they did with the law in Exodus chapter 21. And we need to reference the whole passage of Exodus here. Before we get to our verse, which our Lord quotes in verse 38, that's verse 24 of Exodus 21, we also read this in Exodus 21 in verse 17. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. It's just an example of one thing that's said in Exodus 21, just four verses before our own verse, sorry, seven verses before our verse we're looking at, we have this statement, whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. We have here the laws governing relationships between parents and children, There is a duty here for children to honor their parents. Very clear, is it not, in Exodus 21, verse 17. And yet, if you know your Gospels, you'll know precisely what the Jews did with this law. They dismissed it. They said, it doesn't suit us, so we will not abide by it. We will not enact it. Our Lord deals with this in Matthew chapter 15. He says in verse 3, Why do you, the Jews, break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you should have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Exodus 21, 17 puts upon them a burden to honor their parents. And they were to honor their parents with their finances. As their parents grew older, they were presumably to look after their parents, take them into the home, support them financially with their assets. What did they say? No, no, no. The money that was devoted to your care in your old age, I have devoted it to the Lord. Therefore, I do not need to spend it on you, my parents. They cursed their parents. They dishonored their parents. A sin, according to the law of God, worthy of death. That is to say, in Exodus 21, 17, they brushed the law of God aside out of pure self 
interest. Now, what did they do to Exodus 21, verse 23 and 24? They did the very opposite. In verse 17, they've made, as Christ says, the law of God void, empty, meaningless in their lives. But in verse 23 and 24, they've done the very opposite. In fact, this eye-for-eye principle became something of a defining legal concept in the way the Jews dealt with each other. An eye for an eye was extracted from its text and used almost as an absolute principle for them. And it became a principle by which, firstly, they could engage in personal retaliation. You've slapped me, I'll slap you. The eye-for-eye principle actually sets a limit, a limit upon the nature of justice. And it sets a limit upon the nature of punishment. But the Jews extracted this principle, which we find here in relation to injuries to pregnant women, extracted it from there and made it an absolute rule for their lives so that they could mete out justice themselves as they saw fit. Which is precisely why, we'll get to it in a few moments, our Lord says, if somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn the other one. It's not an eye for an eye, he's saying. It doesn't have to be that way. And here we see once again how being against the law of God, antinomianism, and being a legalist, go hand in hand together. They dismiss the word of God seven verses earlier with respect to honoring their parents, and then they overstate, make more of than they should, the eye-for-eye principle in verse 23. And it's always the way, especially with religious people, as our Lord calls them in Matthew 15, hypocrites, Religious people who live lawless lives, and that's according to the measure of God's law, are also legalists because they've replaced God's law with their own law, their standard, their standard of righteousness, which they say is attainable. In Matthew chapter 23, our Lord deals with these very issues again, and he pronounces a judicial woe upon such people. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He calls them blind fools. Woe to you. That's a prophetic judgment upon such kinds of people. Why? Because they had turned the law of God on its head. Instead of the law serving God, serving the interests of righteousness, protecting them and their fellow covenant members, they had turned entirely towards themselves in a matter of self-protection. They were thoroughly unjust people. And we know what happens, do we not, when this becomes the norm for the Christian, the norm in the people of God. We have systemic injustice. That's what happens when this behavior is the norm. You see, all sense of right and wrong has been removed from God's definition and becomes entirely personal. 
righteous dealings are lost. And in so doing, in engaging in this kind of thinking and behavior, we forget who the principal offended party is. It's God himself. Against you, said David, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We forget that God is the principal offended party. And we replace him and his rights with ourselves and our rights. And because then we are the principal offended party who must stand on their own rights, what happens? We forget repentance. We forget mercy. We forget forgiveness towards the offender. We've seen it happen in society. We see it happen in the church. We've redefined sin. We've redefined who the sin is against. We've redefined the kind of censure that should be given. The result is that the offender can never be reclaimed. With the subtext, neither should he be reclaimed, because he's that kind of person. Culture calls this cancel culture. Cancel culture. It's alive and well in society, and if you've got eyes to see, friends, it's alive and well in the church and even in our own hearts. Friends, I want to say this to you. Biblical justice is hard work. It's hard work, frequently messy, requiring a significant amount of time, investigation, godly wisdom. Which, by the way, is why the internet is a terrible place to look for justice. It ought not be so with us, friends. We must remember that God's law is holy, right, and just. It punishes perfectly and it protects parties perfectly. And the heart of this injustice here is what? Pride and self-righteousness. We know that characterized the Jews' behavior. We know it can characterize our own thinking at times. The self-righteous says, I'm never to blame. It's always somebody else's fault Even though they shout a lot and aloud about justice, it is not biblical justice that they are interested in. It's their own justice. It's getting their own outcome. They're interested in one thing, standing on their own rights, protecting their own rights, being quick to censure, reluctant to forgive, so that they get the outcome they want. Friends, I want to say that's the heart of unbelief. It's the heart of unbelief. If the believer knows anything, if you're a child of God here today, you know at least one thing, that you're a sinner. You're a sinner. And were it not for the grace and mercy of Almighty God, you would have strict biblical justice enacted upon your head. It's only by the mercy of God and the goodness of God that we can stand before him. You see, the self-righteous are quick to forget that. Christian, you must never be quick to forget who you are, both by nature and by redemption. And so our Lord instructs us of the principle of justice in verse 39. He provides a counter 
to the prevalent Jewish way of thinking. You have the eye for eye principle, and then he says to you, but, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. What does he mean by this? It's a hard statement in the context, isn't it? Because we are to resist evil, are we not? But here we have the statement, do not resist the one who is evil. Well, the Hebrew term, sorry, the Greek term here for um, resisting is a legal term. It's in, the court, it's in the context of biblical justice being acted before judges. And it has the idea of taking someone to court, suing them over something, bearing testimony against them. And we have to admit, the law of Exodus 21, the whole Mosaic law, certainly permits and at times encourages such. But our Lord is saying here, you are not to misappropriate the law its principles or its practice in order to gain one up on the offender. You are to be righteous in your application of the law of God in your dealings with each other. Jesus is teaching us not to bleed the law of God for all it's worth. Or as Sinclair Ferguson writes this, he says, the Christian ought not to make your rights the basis For your relationship with others. The passage is challenging believers to follow their master's example in personal relationships. Ferguson continues the illustrations Jesus uses seem to bear this idea out that we are not to stand on our own rights. Or rather, let me say it more clearly there are times when we ought not to stand on our own rights. And squeeze every last drop of the law out to bring judgment on others. There are times when that should happen. Friends, there are legal protections and processes in place. They are righteous. They are good. And they are in place, ordained by God for various uh, circumstances and offenses of various kinds. What our Lord is saying is this. The Christian does not have to engage in and certainly should never misapply the principles and processes of justice. Our Lord is saying that the Christian does not have to engage in and certainly never misapply or misappropriate the principles and practices of justice. Christ is teaching us, friends, the inaction of justice. And it's not always simple. It's not always easy. And when we're talking about the inaction of justice, we're not just talking about the complexities of any given judicial case, either in the civil realm or in the church. It's not just the depths of any given case. And I would warn you, friends, if you're a bystander and an onlooker to any given case, either public or ecclesiastical, be very careful in the way you come to judgments. If you've not gone through a biblical process of investigation and examination of all the witnesses, all the information and evidence, you are unqualified. You are unqualified to make a judgment. Scripture speaks very clearly about such. It calls that person who rushes to judgment a fool. 
It says you bring shame upon your head, Proverbs 18. Christ is speaking here not just of the depth and complexity of cases individually so, but he's referring to the reality that for the Christian, justice is enacted in the context of mercy and grace. Because, friends, let's not forget in our own sins against God, we are constantly repairing to God for mercy and grace, are we not? It's what we call repentance. And there are some Christians who take a much harder line on the sins of others than they do on the sins of themselves. They want strict justice for others with absolutely no recourse to mercy. And I think that's in the heart of each one of us in one way or another. And here's where care is needed when we're discussing justice. Some sins absolutely and must, without hesitation, at least as long as it takes, simply need to be dealt with in either a legal or uh, ecclesiastical fashion. They simply must be dealt with. We know that. The law of God, much less myself, we're not speaking about covering up sin. But our attitude in engaging in the legal process, either in the civil realm or ecclesiastically so, what is that attitude? Are we demanding a strict justice because that's what honors God, protects the victims, and desires to reclaim the offender? Or are we demanding strict justice because of some more baser instinct within ourselves? That's a big question we need to ask ourselves. It's about personal motivation. Do we want a pound of flesh? Do we want to be justified in the sight of men and vindicated is that our desire more than we want the good the repentance the reconciliation of the, with the offender are we looking for the protection of christ's glory through discipline at least church discipline friends if we want our pound of flesh you have not understood biblical justice and you have not understood biblical salvation it's that serious a matter And our Lord proves his point by giving examples. The principle is now enacted. He says, not resisting the evil one. This is what it looks like. Don't stand on your own rights. Don't fall into evil uh, when you are confronted by evil. He provides the examples there. If anyone slaps you, this is our third point and closing point. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also, not eye for eye. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, don't sue him back to take his. Give to him also your cloak. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Go extra. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from here. He's saying, do not make your rights the basis for your relationship with others. I've said it before, I'll say it again. There are times to stand on our rights. Very often there are greater opportunities to stand for justice for others' rights than there are our own. Because we want to protect victims of injustice. But here, our Lord provides a real scenario. 
Listen to this. A real scenario where mercy, humility, and self-abasement are the way of dealing with wrongs. Not legal recourse. Here our Lord provides a real way where mercy, humility, and self-abasement are the means of righting wrongs. Don't resist the evil one. Turn the other cheek. That's what he says in verse 39. Turn to him the other cheek also. Here we have cases of assault, cases of danger, and aggression. Our Lord says it is okay, it is right, it is good for the Christian at times not to fight fire with fire, not to work with an eye-for-eye principle. The Jews said, I strike you, you can strike me, or you stroke me, I can strike you. That's not how Jesus did it. Not in his ministry, especially not in his trials, not in his death. Think on this, he, the eternal son of God, the word himself, the one who had perfectly obeyed the law, went through his trials facing spitting, slapping, scourging, and mocking. And once did he even raise his voice in anger against them. Not once did he summon 12 legions of angels to come and deliver him. Even on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. He's not telling us to do something that he didn't perfectly do himself. He chose the way of mercy rather than the way of legal rights. Verse 40, he deals with the taking or the suing in a a court situation of of something which is relatively small, uh, something relatively replaceable, your tunic, at least I assume it's replaceable, What does he say? Let them have your cloak also. Why would he do such a thing? There's an aggressor coming to take something that belongs to yours. Our Lord says, give them more. Ferguson simply comments, he says, where sin abounds in others, let grace abound in us all the more. Verse 41 if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him, sorry, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. What on earth is that about? It's written to a specific context where Roman soldiers would conscript you into helping them carry whatever it was. Simon of Cyrene was conscripted to carry the cross of our Lord. He says, don't resist such evil people. If they want one mile of work off you, go an extra mile. Go over and above. It's not a sinful action, carrying their goods, their, 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 whatever it might be. It's one which certainly infringes on what we call today our civil liberties. But it's not something that's making us disobey the command of God. Christ says, go the extra mile. Go the extra mile. In other words, our Lord is saying wisdom, mercy, and humility must prevail. Even to those who have nothing, verse 42, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, let's be clear. Christ is dealing with a rather narrow set of circumstances here. He's not speaking generally of the principles of diaconal or mercy ministries in verse 42. He's not speaking about enabling uh, uh, misconduct or laziness. 
He's not speaking in the other verses, verses about uh, an absolute prohibition on standing up for rights. It's not absolute. But he is saying something that is terribly countercultural to our ears today. Consider this, our country here, built, founded upon the idea of rights because of the excessive abuse of a ruler. The Orthodox Presbyterian Church founded in a similar way. Ecclesiastical abuse forced people out, and so they formed a denomination built in many ways on the rights of people. So whether you look at our Constitution, the Bill of Rights, or our form of government in our church, both documents are filled with human rights, or the rights of the citizens of this country, or the rights of the members of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. That's why this message is hard for us to hear. Because we are so used, as Christians and Americans, of thinking in a certain way. Our Lord is saying this, though, where possible, for the sake of Christian witness, the Christian ought to conduct himself like his Lord. There is a category of offense laid before us which is not resolved by straight litigation, but by mercy and love and covering a sin. The injured party, who Christ is calling here, do not slap them back but turn the other cheek. The injured party, by faith, if you're a Christian, must be content to say, I can leave that offense with the Lord. He will deal with it as he sees fit. After all, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? I can leave it with the Lord. I can cover the sin. Mercy, not retaliation and anger, triumphs in the realm of sin. As I've said, friends, we're not being asked to do what our Lord has not first done for us. And this is really the message of the gospel this morning, is it not? If you're a Christian here today, God has not expected or exacted from you a strict recompense for your sin. He has required it at the hand of Christ. He has not required it at your hand if you're a Christian. He put the full punishment of your sin upon the Savior and the righteousness that he earned in his life has been granted unto you. It is good news that God does not require of sinners themselves an exact recompense for sin because none of us would be saved if that were the case. There's also a message here for those who are injured presently or have been injured by trials and offenses of various kinds, God will do what is right. God will do what is just. And justice in this life is frequently imperfect, mediated as it is through sinners. It's frequently imperfect. The good news is that God is a righteous judge, and he will render to each man according to their deeds, as Romans, uh, Paul says in Romans. We can leave injustice 
when it can't be resolved in this life in the hands of God. But the gospel also comes to those who have injured people. God's law reveals your sin, our sin, my sin. Sins which are worthy of hell itself. The gospel tells us this, Christ has come to take all our sins away. Even those sins where we've injured other people. And not only has he come to take the penalty of our sin away from us, he has come to take the power of sin in our lives away from us. The power of sin has been broken so that we do not need to continue behaving in those injurious ways we have behaved before. Relates back to the conduct, the character that we read of in the Beatitudes that we sung earlier on. We read blessed, we sung those blessed are the men whose hearts do move and melt with sympathy and love. From Christ the Lord they shall obtain like sympathy and love again. Friends, as Christians, we are debtors. We're debtors to mercy alone. Of covenant mercy we sing. And as recipients of divine mercy, who like we should also exhibit mercy to others? Let's pray.